You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. Visit www.drobo.com to learn more. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 188, Cupid. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine a single episode of Star Trek to pick it apart for morals, meanings, messages, and to see what stands the test of time. This week, Cupid. Ah, can Apollo be far behind? Yes. <laughs> Actually, it can be many years before, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe yeah, but they, later, yeah. maybe, maybe I don't know. <laughs> but but they, they they have to know each other. Yeah, well, maybe. you would think, yeah, because they yeah. Hung, they hung out in the Pantheon together, which I, I'm given yeah. to understand was a club. It was, it was, it was the best club. <laughs> yeah, it was the best club. So Cupid, we do this thing where we try to tell people really quickly at the beginning of the show what the show is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cupid is the one with Vosh. No, not that one. And it's the one with Q. No, not that one. And it's the one with Robin Hood. Yes. Ah, that one. That one. Okay. Right. I see. So you're spelling Cupid with a Q. Not, I, with a C-U. not me, man, because I'm allergic to misspelling, <laughs> but it is spelled for this episode. Uh, yes, Q-P-I-D. Cupid. And uh, more on what that is in a moment. Just like we'll get trivia in a moment as well. But first, I want to let you know how to get in touch with us. Not you, John, because you know how to get in touch with me. Uh, mission totally log. Know yeah, we, I know you do. You grok. Yeah. You reach. All mm-hmm. of the above. Uh, mission log pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Uh, you can leave uh, comments for us in all those places. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can. Our phone number is three two three five two two five six four one. Our email address. Yet another place for comments. Mission log at roddenberry dot com. Our show website. Holy cats! Another place for comments. Um, also discover documents and all sorts of things there missionlogpodcast.com and please do remember that we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log excellent and today Ken before we get into trivia if you'll allow me Mm -hmm. we have to say a few words about our sponsor this week Drobo okay I'm going to stop you right there we don't have to we get to we we do We, we get to we're privileged to and by the way this one is for you, Jason, from Facebook. <laughs> this is for you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, here's the idea with Drobo, Ken. Uh, we live in an era when we accumulate data. I, I think about the number of times that I fill up a phone or, or an iPad or my computer with stuff, with photos, with videos. It's so easy to do that. And you have to have a place to put all of that data. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the hard drive in your computer is not enough. I would say all the time. The hard drive in your computer is not enough. So along comes Drobo with an easy way to expand the amount of data that you can use. And the thing that I love about it is it's so easy to do. 
on the fly, different capacity drives. You're just buying the, the raw hard drives and you stick them into your Drobo and you've got instant access to tons of storage. One of my other favorite features that I, uh, I mentioned before is that on the one that I've got, I have the 5D, which allows me to put five hard drives together into this case. There's actually a slot on the bottom for uh, it's an MSATA interface for a solid state drive. So there's a little solid state portion to speed up the performance of accessing all those files. So you take something like a photo library, Tons and tons and tons of photos, but each individual photo can be a relatively small file. Those load so much faster because they're using that little, little portion that's on solid state. It gets even better. Cool features like a battery-backed cache. So if you're copying files and then suddenly there's a power failure, it can save that data for you. And, um, and I would say one of the, uh, the other sexiest features here, Ken, indicator lights. <laughs> How do you feel about that? You like the lights, do you? I, I will tell you. I actually, like the lights. Yeah. There's one thing that you mentioned that I think is really great, too. If you're going for one of the, like, if you've got a small office or, you know, you have a few computers in your home that you want to network, you mentioned not wanting to load up your phone or not wanting to load up your tablet uh, with a bunch of, you know, with, with too much data. But if you still yeah. want to have access to that data on the networked devices, uh, so like the 5N or uh, some of the heavier duty uh, Drobos, right. uh, they've actually got apps where you can access information that's on your Drobo. Now, your stuff's still not stored online, so your stuff is still secure. And in fact, once you establish that connection between your phone and your, uh, and your Drobo, uh, it, it's encrypted while it's in transit to you. But basically, if you've got you know uh, some amount of information that you want to be able to share with someone, but you don't want to keep huge amounts of data on your device... Uh, you can still access the stuff that's on your Drobo, you know, provided you have an internet connection and your Drobo is still active wherever it is. So, I mean, there's there's just a ton of different Drobos and a ton of different uses for them. And really the best thing for us to do, instead of saying, oh, and then there's this one and there's that one, is for you to go to Drobo.com to find out which one's right for you. And then once you do that, what do they do, John? Oh, it gets even better because Mission Log listeners can save 100 bucks off their purchase of a Drobo Mini, Drobo 5D, Drobo 5N, or any 8-drive or 12-drive system at drobostore.com by using the discount code ML100. And I have to say, we've been hearing from Mission Log listeners who have ordered their Drobos. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, Drobo are fans of Mission Log, so that's why we're glad to have them with us. And remember, if you would like your own, go to drobostore.com, use that code ML100 to get $100 off. And we do thank Drobo very much for sponsoring this week's episode of Mission Log. And that, my friends, leads us to John Champion's trivia. Oh, here we go, Ken. Today's episode, Cupid. The story is by Randy Russell and the teleplay by Randy Russell and Ira Stephen Bear. Now, Randy has just two other screenplay credits to her name, 1989's All's Fair and 1993's Face the Music. Today's episode is directed by longtime Next Gen director Cliff Bowl. And the original title of this episode was Q Love. Um, I actually pulled some research notes on this, and uh, there is not a whole lot there, but they do, of course, reference the adventures of Robin Hood, uh, specifically the 1938 film. Um, the original idea was just to contrive a love triangle for Picard, Vosh, and Q. 
and they could have said it anywhere, really. Um, and Camelot was even thrown around, um, presumably with those three as Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot. Hmm. Um, it's it's yeah. good, though, that they went with what they did, because I can name maybe one other knight from their own table. <laughs> but, right. but there is yeah. name recognition with all of the like I saw the guy with the loot and I was like I can't remember who that is and I know the yeah. dwarf is Will Scarlet I can't remember who that is but then as soon as they said it's Alan a day I'm like oh yeah of course it is mm-hmm. yeah there you go yeah, yeah. Um, so many options of where to set the story but Robin Hood just seemed absolutely right and in fact a few months after this episode came out Kevin Costner's Robin Hood Prince of Thieves would be out uh, summer of 1991 so some good timing there at least that the idea was uh, was back in the news and since we're talking about Robin Hood. Um, Let's talk about that original film from 1938, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Certainly not the first time that Robin Hood had been committed to film, but it's probably one of the best known. And it I I can I think it's probably in my top 10 of all time favorite movies. I absolutely love that movie. Really? Robin Hood. Yeah. Robin Hood played by Errol Flynn, Maid Marian played by Olivia de Havilland, Sir Guy played by Basil Rathbone, who is just fantastic just choose scenery from one end to the other uh the sheriff of nottingham is melville cooper and prince john the incomparable claude reigns um so there are shots in this there are moments in this episode that heavily heavily reference that movie and if you haven't seen it everything the score is incredible Cinematography is great, and uh, you see why Errol Flynn was such a huge star. It is a terrific, terrific movie. But that isn't the only movie that is referenced in this episode, no? We have an Animal House reference, of all things. Um, Worf breaks Geordi's mandolin or lute, and that is a recreation of a scene from Animal House in which Stephen Bishop, who sang the theme for that movie, has his guitar smashed at the party by John Belushi's Bluto. It was an improvised moment, and Stephen Bishop kept the pieces of that broken guitar to this day. Some little prop notes here. In the background, on the shelf in Picard's quarters, he's got a bust of William Shakespeare. And to me, it looked like the one from Batman. I'd never noticed it before, but it is in there in his quarters. And and oddly enough, if you look really closely, he has the same book of the works of Shakespeare in his ready room and in his quarters. So I guess, if, as we've discussed here, if you can replicate anything, yeah. why not just replicate anything? And the man cannot get enough of Shakespeare. No, no, just not enough. Um, it's pretty much Starships and Shakespeare, and that's that's it. Um, we have exterior shots of uh, Annick Castle in Northumberland, a few hours' drive, actually, from Sherwood Forest. And that castle would have been new in the 12th century, but uh, there it is in a uh, kind of a stock shot for this episode. Let's talk about guest stars. We have Jennifer Hetrick back as Vash, and we have John Delancey, of course, as Q. But we have to mention that in the role of Sir Guy of Gisborne, we have Clive Revel, which couldn't sound more perfect to play an English bad guy, except that he's from New Zealand. Um, he has a long career on the stage in musicals and in Shakespeare. Uh, he, he has done numerous video game and animation voice work, uh, anything from Transformers to Pinky and the Brain, because... Of course he has. Why wouldn't he? Uh, Screen credits include uh, on TV Magnum P.I., T.J. Hooker, Remington Steel, Heart to Heart. 
He had a guest role in a greatly overlooked British spy show, Jason King, and uh, just so many, many more. Now, interestingly, he was the voice of the emperor in The Empire Strikes Back before being replaced by the image and voice of Ian McDermott for the Star Wars special editions. Wait, was Mm -hmm. he also the image of the emperor then? Because we had an image of the emperor in the movie. Yeah, it, it, I, I'm not 100% certain. I'm sure that a Star Wars fan could correct me on that. I know for sure that he is the voice, but I okay. do not know for sure if he is the image hmm. of the Emperor. But we do know that that voice and image was replaced with Ian McDermott. Yeah. Um, now, keeping with the Robin Hood theme of today's show, he was the voice for Richard Lionheart in Tom and Jerry... Robin Hood and His Merry Mouse. And he also had a small role in the 1993 Mel Brooks film, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. And Ken, would you like to know who was King Richard in that movie? Who was King Richard in that movie? None other than Patrick Stewart. Thrills, spills, chills. Nothing says excitement. Like a Starfleet archaeological conference. Prologue. The Enterprise is in orbit around Tagus 3, where it will host the Federation Archaeology Conference's annual symposium. Around Tagus 3, not on it. The Taguans don't let outsiders go to the ruins anymore. Captain Picard knows a lot about those ruins, though. He'll be delivering the keynote address, and he is nervous. Counselor Troy tells him to relax, and after holding his hand through how great his speech is, she sends the captain to bed. Well, to his quarters, where he finds a Horgon and Vosh. You remember the Horgon from Risa and Vaj from Risa? We'll leave them to make out as we go to the opening credits. Act 1. A more relaxed Captain Picard is enjoying breakfast with Vaj, and they're both wearing the same clothes they were wearing last night. You know what that means. It starts to look like Vaj is not a member of the Archaeology Council, though what difference does that make? She's here to see Picard! She really has missed him, she says. Chime at the door and... Oh! Oh my! It is Dr. Crusher. She and the captain have morning tea sometimes, but the captain already has a companion for breakfast. Vosh tells Beverly she's heard all about Beverly, while Beverly says she's heard nothing about Vosh. The two ratchet Jean-Luc's discomfort to Eleven when Vosh asks the good doctor to show her around the ship... And the doctor agrees. The tour takes the two to Ten Ford, where the Archaeology Council's opening reception will be held later today. And there's Riker at the bar in Ten Ford. It is still morning, right? He's never seen Vosh before, so it is, of course, his duty to hit on her. Beverly explains that Vosh is a friend of the captain's, that they met on Risa, and no, Riker hasn't heard of Vosh either. Beverly is called away, leaving Riker to complete Vosh's tour, which ends on the bridge with Vosh curling up in the captain's chair until he comes out of his ready room. Awkward pleasantries are exchanged, and she heads back to her quarters to prepare for the reception. At the reception... Huh. Captain Picard has never told Troy about Vosh either. And that about tears it. She's upset that he has never told any of his friends about her, a fact that she lets him know in no uncertain terms. A mopey Picard heads back to his ready room, where he finds Q... Q wants a hug. That's not going to happen. Act 2. What's Q doing here? 
Yeah, remember when he was banished from the Continuum and Jean-Luc did a good deed that made it possible for Q to do a good deed, which got Q back into the Continuum? Q owes Jean-Luc a debt, and he hates that. So, if Jean-Luc will just tell Q what he wants, Q will be gone. Jean-Luc says he wants Q to be gone. But that apparently doesn't count. Want me to help you with your speech? Want to visit the ruins of Tagus III? Want to go back in time to visit them so you won't be breaking any laws? Eventually, Q takes the hint and disappears off the ship. The captain lets Riker know that this is going to be a Q episode. Riker will tell the crew. Jean-Luc stops by Vosh's quarters for a visit. Look, it's not that I'm embarrassed about you. I'm just a really, really private... Hey, what are you doing with maps of the ruins of Tagus Three? Yeah, she is glad to see Jean-Luc, but no, he is not the only reason that she's there. Though she says he is the most important reason... He finds that harder to believe, though, when he spots dig equipment in her quarters. She plans to steal stuff to sell, which is, of course, what she does. She says she cannot and will not change for him, and he says the same goes for her. Or him. He won't change either. Q hears all of this and tells Picard, in his jammies, ready for night-night, that he knows now what the captain's weakness is. It's his love of Vosh. Q says Picard is not equipped for love and offers to do away with her. Picard tells Q, in many words, to butt out. You would have me stand idly by as she leads you to your destruction? Picard says yes. And kind of like the genie when someone wishes for something that'll end poorly, Q has a plan, and Q vanishes. Hey, remember that speech Picard was supposed to make? We finally get to hear it. And he is so into the speech that he doesn't even notice the Robin Hood-style costumes and props appearing around his senior staff in the back row. He does notice, though, when he is suddenly dressed as Robin Hood and instantly transported to Sherwood Forest. Q. Act 3. The crew is discussing who is which character when Sir Guy of Gisborne rides in, ready to kill Picard, who's Robin Hood. Worf goes to defend the captain, but soldiers show up and the crew is outnumbered. Picard orders his people into the woods. Suddenly, riding literally out of nowhere, it's Q, who would prefer to be referred to as his honor, the Sheriff of Nottingham. Picard says they won't play his game, which is fine with Q. In 24 hours, Picard and company will be back on the Enterprise, and Vosh, made Marion here, will be dead. Unless Robin Hood saves her from the execution ordered by Sir Guy of Gisborne. Then no, Q can't stop it. The wheels are set in motion, and events must play out as they play out. The stakes are high. The risks are real. Cue out. In Nottingham Castle, Vosh is trying to put together what's going on. A short talk with Sir Guy of Gisborne, and suddenly, Maid Vosh has agreed to marry Sir Guy. Beats having her head cut off. Back in Sherwood Forest, the Enterprise crew members are trying to get better at their assigned medieval skills. They stink at them. Riker says they have to do something, but Picard says, not they, me, or he. Picard will save Vosh, and he orders the crew to stay out of it. Act 4. Q, the Sheriff of Nottingham, is surprised to see the prisoner Vosh walking hand-in-hand with Sir Guy. But she's not a prisoner. She's Sir Guy's fiancée. Q is stymied. He accuses Vosh of acting in league with Robin Hood. Everyone knows they're in love but she convinces Sir Guy that that was so long ago and that Robin Hood had had her under some kind of evil spell or something. Sir Guy has made Vosh escorted to her chambers. 
All of this has been witnessed by a random villager who is actually a disguised Robin Hood, who is actually Captain Picard, who is actually Patrick Stewart. I went one too far. Inner Chambers made Vosh a surprise by Robin Hood's arrival. He says he knows what's going on. They were brought here by an old adversary of his, Q. Picard's there to help Vosh escape. By himself. Vosh does not like these odds. Two people against a castle? They argue over what to do next, which is heard by Sir Guy. Vosh grabs Picard's sword and holds him at its point, allowing Sir Guy's soldiers to take Robin Hood into custody. Sheriff Q congratulates Sir Guy for catching his prey, though Sir Guy says the credit goes to Marion. In her chambers, Marion is writing a letter to be delivered by her lady-in-waiting to Robin's men in Sherwood Forest. The plan is interrupted when Marion's chambers are visited by Q, though she doesn't know that's who he is until he refers to Robin Hood as Jean-Luc. Q finds Vosh fascinating. Then he spots the letter she'd written to Riker and finds her even more fascinating. He thinks she's worthy of study, but there's no time. He turns her over to Sir Guy's soldiers for being a traitor. It appears there's going to be a double execution. Act 5. Robin and Marion are arguing on the way to the chopping block. This is your fault. This is your fault! Sheriff Q wants to know whether Picard is ready to admit his weakness. Though Picard argues for Vosh's release, then simply urges the executioner to get on with it. He will, of course, not die. Picard's senior staff has sneaked into the castle, disguised as monks. A great big fight ensues, which they win. Picard rushes into Vosh's chambers, kisses her, and declares to an unseen Q that the game is over. Q appears and congratulates Picard on the rescue. He also considers his debt to Picard paid, since Picard must obviously see how weak and vulnerable he is, how his love of Vosh has brought out the worst in him. Vosh argues that it did in fact bring out the best in Picard. His nobility, his courage, self-sacrifice, tenderness. Q figures Vosh is playing Picard again, but fine, game over. With a wave of Q's hand, Picard and company are back on the Enterprise, Vosh not included. She turns up, though, in Picard's ready room. She's late because she and Q had some things to discuss. As crazy as the whole Nottingham thing was, she's glad it happened. It proved to her that Picard still cares. Picard said he may not show his feelings to his crew, but he does have them. And now, Vosh is off. With Q. He's going to show her things no human has ever seen, an offer Vosh cannot turn down. Picard protests. Q is trouble, he's amoral, he's not to be trusted, which he has to admit is kind of like Vosh. Q promises Picard that no harm will come to her, and with a kiss goodbye... She's gone. The end. Hey, uh, did you notice how Picard, well, Patrick Stewart, does that thing again that we mentioned last time where sometimes she's Vosh, sometimes she's Vash. Yeah. Um, and, and that happens a couple of days. And somebody pointed out um, on, I believe it's on our Facebook page, and, and of course, I don't know how this escaped me, that, of course, in French, Vosh, Means cow. cow, right? So you probably the Frenchman would not, you know. And then, of course, all we could think about was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Fetcher la vache, quoi? Fetcher la vache, <laughs> <laughs> run away. Yeah, yeah. I would <laughs> so assume. Good. I would think that then Picard. Well, that Stuart would make sure to call her Vosh, not or make sure to call her Vash. It's yeah. too much. Whatever. Yeah, just too confusing. I would figure yeah. after a full episode that he would have settled on a pronunciation. 
you would think. Yeah. But that, yeah, that was last season, though. So I guess. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. Not on his mind, really. Um, hey, I've taken this crew to task every now and then for not knowing how to party. But even this crew knows that the archaeological symposium is going to be boring. They they are. I feel like from the beginning, they are settled into the idea that this is what the captain does. Let's mm-hmm. just go with it. And we'll be there to be supportive, kind of like watching Barkley in a play. <laughs> and then we'll clap politely afterward. Maybe. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. You say uh, you say the, the crew doesn't know how to party. But mm-hmm. boy, does Riker know how to drink, huh? Oh, yeah. What hey, time is good it? Morning. They just left breakfast. And maybe yep. he had the night watch. I don't know. And also, yeah. uh, his radar, always mm-hmm. on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and always oh, ready for okay. action. Mm-hmm. And by mm-hmm. action, I mean action. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's got a very smooth line, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's, it was also interesting to find out that Picard not only knows all of Riker's lines, but um, mm-hmm. imitates them. I'm a little disturbed by that. It's, I, well, yeah. It indicates well, that he and Vosh had more time together than I realized they had. It does. Yeah. But I'm also a little disturbed. Like, there's something about professional propriety mm-hmm. that for Captain Picard to be as private a man as he is, is right. apparently you get him off the starship and he just goes crazy. Does he do so. all the crew Maybe. like that? Does he Does he do a Wesley impression? I was just going to say, we have this kid named Wesley who's always like, oh, e equals MC square. And I'm like, yeah, you're such a nerd. <laughs> Says Captain Picard. Yeah, um, let, let's hit let's hit the uh, the ugliest thing in the room. Maybe okay. Uh, there's a tiny, okay. there's a tiny bit of sexism in this episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Crusher and Troy hit guys wearing metal helmets on the head with clay pots mm-hmm. uh, during the fight. Now, first of all, uh, I get images of Ewoks immediately. Like you know, they, they take a <laughs> stick and they hit a stormtrooper who is in full body armor, including a helmet. And that's yeah. enough to knock them down. Okay, but that's so. Oh, no. So, what good is a metal helmet if a clay breakaway pot is going right. to take them out of the fight? But right. really, the question is. So, so I get. Okay, so so Crusher is a doctor. Mm-hmm. She's not going to want to kill anybody necessarily. Um, Data is 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 Friar Tuck in this whole yes. thing, a man of the yeah. cloth, and so right. you could see him maybe picking up a pot and hitting somebody over the head. Deanna mm-hmm. teleported in with a bow and arrow. Now, granted, yeah. she's bad with the bow and arrow. She ends up shooting Data <laughs> in the chest with it. Right. But she is obviously, according to the rules that have been set up around this, expected to be a fighting person. Mm-hmm. I would like to have seen her fight. Yeah. Or, or yeah. really, I would like to. And, and it's especially noticeable because so your, your, your shots are there's Riker fighting with the stick and there's Worf fighting with a sword. And then Crusher hits somebody on the head with a pot. And then Troy hits somebody on the head with a pot. And I'm not sure about those first two that I said, but it is woman hits guy on head with pot. Other woman hits other guy on head with pot. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like mm-hmm. um, it was and it's a momentary thing, except didn't you say that we actually had people mention it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did, actually. All right. um, Which I didn't in, realize. In I, of course, just automatically mentioned it because what the heck. But yeah. then I'm glad I'm not the only one who noticed it because, yeah, kind of lame. I would think that Crusher could fight, too. Some it, Just somewhere a- after you have the class on what to eat when you visit planets has yeah. got to be a defense class in there as well, which probably goes beyond picking up clay pots. Well, no, here's you know? the thing. If, if you want to do the comedy angle, though, of, oh, somebody's mm-hmm. just going to get hit on the head. And it's got yeah. to be one of those two that's going to do that. I'm going to say because of her medical training, because of not wanting to actually kill anyone, which, by the way, does not sure. seem to be a problem for anybody else on the crew. 
Sure. For her not wanting to kill anyone, okay, let her go ahead and just drop something on somebody's head. And if you're going for mm-hmm. that comedy angle, then I think it ought to be Data as well, especially because he looks completely nonplussed. That's right. I'm rewriting a 27-year-old episode of Star Trek. <laughs> I'm sorry, 27 years as we record this. Who knows how old by the time somebody hears this? Right, so speaking about killing people, yeah. when the Robin Hood portion begins, mm-hmm. where are they? Uh, Sherwood where Forest. Okay, are they literally in Sherwood Forest? And who are these people that they're fighting? Q says that they have a life of their own. Yeah. This the simulation has a life of its own. So I'm inclined to think that they are not from a holodeck. Right. Um, are they literally in the 12th century in England? Because Q has already said, hey, I'll take you back two billion years to the Tagus three ruins. Yeah. He can time travel after all. So did the Enterprise crew literally just kill some people from history? So even if Robin Hood the the myth, I mean that that's all fictional stories, but there are little glimpses of of real people that make their way into those stories. Right. So I, I'm a little bit concerned about this. I'm a little bit concerned about huge as sort of manifesting living beings with their own minds and their own abilities and just letting them go and then they're going to get killed. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they are real people, they've been dead for 1,100 years, right? Yes. In the 24th or 23rd century, rather. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I don't. I do not yeah. know the answer to that question. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. Yeah, we can't think too hard about it. Get I'll the writer on the phone. Those, yeah. You know, they suffer the indignity of dying once in the 12th century and then have to do it all over again in the 24th century. But maybe it happened exactly the way it happened the first time. So really, it's the same thing. I mean, bear in mind, yeah. they haven't knocked Robin Hood on the head someplace and tied him up while Picard kills these people. Picard is now Robin Hood. Right, right. So Sir Guy of Gisborne's only dying at, you know, the point of Robin's blade one time. It's just okay, we're, so, we're seeing it again, and somebody else is doing it this time. So then if we're pretending that Robin Hood is real, then for that moment that all of that action happens, the real Robin Hood is gone. Picard is in his place, and mm-hmm. then the real Robin comes back and he's like, hey, look, all these dead bodies. Well, wait a minute. Did you did you uh, see Heaven Can Wait? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, see, the guy yeah. wasn't gone. It was just uh-huh. somebody else in his body, in but his it was, body. It was yeah. him and not the guy. Let's talk about something important. Uh, what's up with okay. Delancey's hair? Now, oh, like, that's okay. very important. Here around the house, uh, we refer to his hair as, uh, and not his hair, but just in general, uh, business in the front, party in the back, okay? Mm-hmm. And we did not coin this term. This is a very old term, but living where we live, uh, it is a term that we still get to use. I will say far too frequently. This is not a hairstyle that I haven't seen in 20 years. Uh, see also hockey hair, uh, mm-hmm. dog the bounty hunter hair, and me in high school hair. Although to my credit, by the time I graduated high school, I was already done with this hair. And I graduated high school a few years before this episode was aired. There's really no excuse for Q. You could even no. say there's excuse for Delancey. But there's no excuse for Q, because he's traveled all of space and time. He's got to know that this is a bad do. (laughs) I I had not given it that much thought, but now I will. Yeah, well, you see, you you don't see it anywhere, though. I see it everywhere still. Right. (laughs) Right. uh, It it assaults my eyes. Hey, it was nice for Picard to frame the Tegas Three uh, ruins as a mystery mm-hmm. and himself as the detective. Nice uh, call back to the way that Picard has talked about things before. And at least mystery, I believe, is said twice, not 17 times. 
like it was before. Are you like me, though? Did you figure that the ruins of Tegas 3 were actually going to matter? Uh, yeah, I thought they might. <laughs> I thought they might at one point. Yeah, maybe a little disappointed. Yeah. I mean, they had a map and everything. Yeah, we've talked many times, too, about the different uses you would have for a holodeck. So, mm-hmm. so let's be clear. There are these ruins down on the planet below us that we can't mm-hmm. go to. Right. We're going to orbit the planet, though, just to really tantalize everybody. You know, right. with the fact that, oh, it's so close, but we can't go there. But let me tell you all about it uh, in this bar. And, you yeah. know, maybe you could recreate the ruins on a holodeck. Yeah. But yeah. 10 Ford is such a nice bar. they've got um they've got maps yeah and they've got uh there are hundreds of expeditions before yeah before you you know about a hundred years ago when the tagans or taguans decided to close up shop yeah so yeah plenty of opportunity to recreate that on the holodeck curious about that i'm also curious if they're constantly receiving messages from the taguans going seriously get out of here you're not coming down you're not coming down. <laughs> right. Beat it. Right. Go on. Right. It's like, man, yeah. maybe we should just let them back in. Our skies are just littered with people who want to get like this close. <laughs> but they never do. Um, there were three funny lines that were given to Worf in this episode. I mm-hmm. only like two of them. And honestly, the, mm. most, the most famous is my least favorite. I am not a merry man. Well delivered. Well executed. Absolutely no reason Worf should know Robin Hood. Yeah. And so for him to pop out with that immediately, like if he had been reading it later, like if they're you know trying to explain to him why and somebody hands him an iPad, I'm sorry, a pad mm-hmm. that says, <laughs> you know, here's what this is, then he could, you know, protest. Um, I actually, I did like the comment, uh, nice legs for a human. I don't know hmm. why, but it, I think because it just came out of nowhere in a way. And also he's yeah. now been on the crew for like, well, at least four years, four and a half maybe. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the one you mentioned earlier. Um, when he breaks Jordy's loot. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Well, it, he sells that line, the sorry, correctly. Yes, yes he does. Yeah, absolutely does. I, I felt like I'm not a merry man as it was a little over the top. You, you know, I would have almost preferred for him to undersell that a little bit. The the nice legs line, I, I really wondered about that. Um, I mean, it's funny. It's out of nowhere. Um, it, it, but there was something about it that was a little off, like, I think that's maybe something that I would think and might say to my friends, but he's at work. <laughs> it feels a little inappropriate. There's something about it that made me think, do you do that when you're in uniform in a place that's like sort of an official reception? Hmm. I don't know. It seemed just maybe a little out of place, but credit to the writers for putting in a non sequitur for Worf. That, I will, that kind of worked, I will you know? say, though, while he is at work, he is also in a bar and he lives at work. Well, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I'm not yeah, saying that's that was, that's yeah. an excuse for being inappropriate. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, he's not I don't think he would do that, you know, like behind the horseshoe, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, no, no, which no, is no, actually where he yeah. works. Yes. You know, he's I mean, he's on a ship where he lives and works. I'm not sure he's actually yeah. at work at that moment when he's like, hey, check out the games. Yeah, right, right. Um, I'm glad to see that Picard's fencing training has come back and served him well. It's actually, you know, we we introduced that a long time ago. Yeah. So why not go ahead and have that here? I wondered how some of the others knew how to wield a sword. Uh, We also, well, if Picard is good at fighting with uh, with swords, we also have uh, established that Q is very good at using the slow clap. 
Yeah. Always glad to see that in a show. Nicely done there. Doesn't even have and, to be uh, there for it. No, no. Not when not it starts anyway. Yeah, he can it just starts yeah. off camera. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I did have a question. Why does Data carry around a bomb in his arm? Hmm. Well, well, if somebody says, hey, Data created a diversion, he, he could tap dance because we, we know that he knows how to do that. <laughs> uh, there are other things that he can do. And I just wondered about Dr. Suing at one point saying to Data, you know, like treating him like the child and his prize creation and all of this stuff saying, now, now, Data, I've given you all of these abilities. And don't forget, I put an explosive in your arm if you ever have to create a diversion one day. Uh, all right. Thanks. In the absence of Wesley Crusher, allow me to be the first to say. Vosh and the Captain, sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes the Horgon. Then comes taking things that do not belong to you. Then, there is disappearing. Ken, two billion years is a very long time. I agree, John, but probably not as long as three billion. <laughs> no, Sorry. no, not nearly. Yeah. Not nearly. I don't think that was so your point, though. Uh, Earth is about four and a half billion years old. Humanity is only about 200,000 years old. So it's unlikely, and, and I saw this in the research notes for this episode, that anything, anything would still be around after two billion years. Um, but what's interesting to me is that there is still a civilization there. Mm-hmm. not allowing anyone else to come back and check out the ruins. So how far have they advanced in two billion years? Um, and forgive me. Hang on a second. Where are you getting this two billion number? Oh, uh, uh, so first of all, it is in the research notes. But, okay. uh, but Q says it to Picard. We could go back in time mm-hmm. to when those, you know, before those ruins were ruined. Okay. So we're establishing that the history of those ruins goes it's back two, two billion, billion years. years. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So unlikely that they would stick around for, for that long. But but I do love the idea of Q being able to take anyone anywhere. Now, of course, the observer effect, which we've talked about, would screw everything up. But But that really is the dream. And for a guy like Picard, I would think that that would be almost too much to pass up. It, it would be... The opportunity, you know, to see Rome at the height of the Republic or to see Leonardo painting the Mona Lisa or to see Gallagher in the 80s, you know, <laughs> just just really pivotal cultural uh, moments that can't be recreated. Lord, which of know? those would you choose, by the way? Uh, not Gallagher. OK. Um, no, uh, uh, Rome. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, fascinated by by actually a, a living, thriving city mm-hmm. like Rome when it was at its height yeah it's an interesting idea actually i mean because we talk about the whole you know uh, the act of observing actually changes the thing that's observed but would that be true when something Mm -hmm. as big as i mean like like do i change new york every time i go there yeah yeah you do i guess i kind of do which is weird but i wouldn't think it would be to such a you know a detrimental way that i wouldn't go back in time although maybe if i was observing new amsterdam in the 1600s 
Well, but, you know, it's the whole uh, – we've talked about it before, but like a whole butterfly effect thing. You know, by by you going to New York now, you getting in line in front of somebody to get on the subway and you're the last guy to get into that car preventing someone else to get into that subway car. Mm -hmm. You may have started a chain of events that could irreparably change that other person's life. I dare say I did. <laughs> I, I think you did too. Ken. So the first time I was in New York in 1988, then mm-hmm. I may I may have ruined everything for all of us. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah, way to go, Ken. Yeah, sorry about that. Really, yeah. okay. send me the Thanks bill. For the apology. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I found myself wondering about the nature of love and relationship in this episode. Hmm. Um, Q says to Picard, "You seem tense, preoccupied, somewhat smaller." And and so I wondered, is is it that Picard has changed in a way, you know, assuming Q can be trusted here when he says that? Because it's also possible that Q is just saying it to get under his skin, right? That's what I think, yeah. Conversely, though, uh, Picard and Vosh both seem to expect the other person to change as well, out, uh, both outwardly and, you know, intentionally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Vosh mm-hmm. seems literally upset. Now, the other thing is, uh, the only honest person that we're dealing with here is Picard. Uh, but Vash seems really upset that Picard has not told anyone about her. She actually mm-hmm. seems to think that Picard should have told everyone about her, right? Yeah. Um, and, of course, Picard thinks that she should quit stealing. And, yes, for the record, she should quit stealing, but she should do that either because she wants to be a productive member of society or because she decides that stealing is wrong, not because Picard wants her to. Because that's only going to work, you know, until the first time they fight. Or until, you know, until they break up or she'll hmm. just say, I'm not stealing things and secretly she will be. I mean, she's going to want to change for her, not because of, you know, love, just like he's got to want to change for him. Not just because, well, it would make her happy. <laughs> I, well, so I wonder a couple of things about that then. Um, this idea, when we met Vash originally, mm-hmm. um, we knew that this was a one off moment. That this was Picard's vacation, and we know what Risa is there for. Risa is there to uh, have facilitate- things stolen from it. <laughs> Risa <laughs> is there to facilitate physical intimacy, and that's about it. Right, right. You know, right. yeah. Um, so Picard got to do that, and then he got to leave because that's the way Vash. Uh, that's the way that Risa works. And now we're presented with her coming back. So. How how would either of them really have an expectation as to how that reunion would go? You know, um, does she have a leg to stand on to be upset that he would not mention her to all of his friends, mm-hmm. who are, by the way, his co-workers? So that that complicates things a little bit as well. He, his he, only friends are his co-workers. He lives at work. He does. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And then does he have any reasonable expectation that she would not care that much? Because after all, they they met under a very different pretense. Um, Their relationship, such as it was, was over at the end of that episode. He's like, hey, that was like two seasons ago. Um, I've got many more scripts (laughs) since then. Right. right. So I I, I did wonder about maybe the, the misplaced expectation. Have they been in touch since then? Maybe that would have been an interesting little uh, bit of detail to explore there um, that maybe she would have been more uh, expected to have that reaction when she got there. I was amused by something with Vash when when she gets caught with the shovel and the expedition equipment. 
Mm-hmm. She says, but that's what I do. Right. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know what? That is what you do. But you're on a starship and you're advertising that you're going to do something illegal. That's sort of like being in a police station and stealing something off of someone's desk. <laughs> and just saying, but that's what I do. She's not advertising to everyone, though, that that's what she does. She's, I mean, the only person who knows that that's what she does is the only person who hears here again that that's what she does. And Picard already knows that. And if he's going mm-hmm. to be in relationship with her, you see, that that's kind of what I was talking about before. If he's going to be in relationship with her, he either mm-hmm. has to accept that or he has to not be in relationship with her. I mean, if she comes to him and says, you know, I feel bad about this stealing. What else can I do? Then he gets to help. Then he gets to do something like that. But and look, I'm not saying, well, if you're in love with somebody and you know they're a murderer, you go ahead and let them. No, you probably actually turn them in at that point. But he can't act surprised by it. He can't act as if I mean, he does the one thing that he can do. He's like, yeah, not on my ship, because literally my Mm. ship. So, no, you cannot do this at this point. But to expect because they have feelings for her, and I'm assuming that their feelings are real, because he has feelings for her and she has feelings for him, for either to expect the other to change just because of that. I mean, just because it's like, well, I love you, so you now need to be what I always thought I would be in love with, because I'm in love with you, but I need my preconceptions to be met. What Mm -hmm. I think love is, I need you to be that for me. Well, no. I mean, if you're really in love with the other person, I mean, you either need to figure out whether you can deal with what that person actually is or who that person actually is, or you need to decide, yeah, I have feelings, but this isn't going to, this just isn't going to work because I have this crazy idea that, you know, the woman in my dreams doesn't steal two billion year old artifacts. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I do think though that she is there under a bit of a false pretense. You know, she's Mm. not there just because she's fascinated by his boring uh, archeological lecture. Yeah. She's there. So, and, (laughs) You know, again, it seems like the vetting process would be a little bit better before. Okay, well, we we have this scientist, we have this scientist, we have this person who steals things. Okay, we're not sure exactly why she's here, but we'll yeah. She joined the council. Hey, they didn't say how. I mean, look, it's not like a it's not a hot ticket to get. They didn't say how you join the archaeology council. Right. Remember, um, George Bailey was a member of the National Geographic Society when he was fourteen years old. Mm, Because mm -hmm. you know, it's that and two dollars. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I did mention before that we got those comments about sexism in the episode. Somebody talking about the clay pots before we had even really brought that up. And mm-hmm. uh, so that, that was one thing. But th- there was a line that kind of stuck with me that um, Q, he says to Picard, it pains me to see the great Jean-Luc Picard brought down by a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of that that weighs there for a moment. Like, it's bad enough to see Picard vulnerable and and not have the right course of action and the right answer. But should is it more of a blow to his dignity because it's a woman? Because that seems to be what Q is definitely saying here, whether or not Picard actually agrees with that sentiment. Well, I mean, that's that's Q's belief, though. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's is Q a sexist in that respect? Eh. He may have weird ideas about relationship and whether people should actually be in them. It seems to me. I, it's. Hmm. I don't know. Well, because he has another. He has another funny line there. Nor will I soon forget the look of anguish on your face, the pain, the misery. If I didn't know any better, I would have thought that you were already married. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a little it's a little yeah. uh, planet mud. <laughs> yeah, it is. Right? But it's right. it, it doesn't strike me though. I mean, it, hmm. When the writers make it so that the best a woman can do in a fight is hit somebody over the head with a clay pot, that seems like sexism. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. a character whose motives and whose actions and whose thoughts we're already always having to question has sexist thoughts, it doesn't strike me then as a sexist episode. It strikes me as a as a as a questionable um, series of thoughts by a character. Mm-hmm. Do you see the difference? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Yeah. Because I'm not saying. I mean, I, there are. I mean, there are plenty of people who think. You know. Well, of course, they're sexist, so maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of times where we will have one character think, oh, yeah, the problem with you is you got hitched. Oh, the problem with you is you fell in love. You yeah, know? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not necessarily a sexist thing. It's more of a, well, it actually speaks to a failing on their part, generally speaking, in literature. It's like, oh, yeah, but, but you're too strong for that, so you'll end up dying alone or something. I mean, because we're still under the impression, right, that, that, Picard really is the first bit of humanity that Q has spent any serious time with, right? Yeah. And Picard hasn't had a girl any of the times that he's met. Hasn't had a woman. Hasn't had a lover. Hasn't had a significant other, let's say. Let's not even make it about sexes. He hasn't mm-hmm. He hasn't had an attachment. His attachment has been to his ship and his crew. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden there's this, there's this new element that for Q is truly new. Not just Vosh, but wait a minute. Picard's like... Picard's heart's going pitter pat for somebody. Oh, this this seems like trouble. This seems like weakness. This seems like an issue. Although I wondered mm. by the end of it if if uh, Q wasn't feeling a little bit of it himself because he found Bosch so uh, alluring. Oh, yeah, yeah. Clearly, clearly he was. So that that might be that Q and Picard share that same little bit of vulnerability. Um, Wait, let's jump. There, there's one other thing. There's one other thing about yeah. that really quickly though. Yeah. yeah. Um, when they're having that whole thing that you're talking about, I would have thought you were already married, all that stuff. Uh, what does Q say? If I had known it was this easy, I would have appeared to you as a female. <laughs> right. And then in the right. end, when Picard is laying out everything that's wrong with Q and Vaj mm-hmm. says, yeah, remind you of anybody? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing. It is. Oh, yeah. It's more yeah. of a a love hate relationship between Q by the end of this episode than it has ever been before. Yeah, yeah, it's, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly since from the beginning, I mean, uh, when Picard finds Q in his chair, he's very terse with him. Right. It's a very tense scene. Having earlier in the episode uh, caught Vosh in his chair as well. Different chair. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is interesting. Keep talking, mister. We're coming up with some new stuff. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's talk about um, the scenes with Beverly and Vash. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, Crusher and Picard often have morning tea together. Apparently, this is a thing that they do. So they, yeah. they do have this sort of personal relationship uh, in addition to their professional relationship. Um, however, you would want to frame that personal aspect of the relationship. And then... Picard's two women, kind of, go off on a tour to, to get to know each other right. better. And, and, and in the process, they don't actually hash out anything personal, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of strange. Um, but Riker is there to lay on a line, and, and he does it well. Um, this brought up the questions we kind of talked about a little bit before. Did Picard tell Vash about everyone in his crew and did he do imitations of them all? And was that appropriate? (laughs) But I feel a little disappointed, a little cheated that we didn't actually sort of finish up that 
Beverly Crusher and Vosh interaction. Really? Like it started. Yeah, it started. And I felt like it may have started to go someplace. But then I felt like it just sort of went out with a whimper that, well, I showed her around the Enterprise and that's all there is to say about that. I guess we're okay now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my now wife, when she and I first started dating, we were invited to a party by somebody who I had kind of dated as well. I wouldn't say that mm-hmm. she was actually an ex. I would say that she was somebody with whom I went on a few dates. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, it's a friendly invitation. Sucker. Honestly, it was just, I mean, and, and, and the conversation was basically the conversation that, that uh, Crusher had with Vaj. It was all very pleasant. It was all, mm-hmm. you know, very nice. It felt a little weird to me. And when we left the party, I got an earful. Because, I mean, it, it, it was exactly what happened, it seemed to me. It, what the whole thing was, was a sizing up of what was perceived as competition between the two of them. Unbeknownst to me, the whole time. Right. That's apparently what was happening at the party, and that's what I felt like was happening with Beverly and Bosch as well. See, I think that was the intention of starting that for this, and I, and I felt like, oh, this this is going to get good. There is going to be that sizing up, and it'll have some payoff, but I felt like it didn't. So maybe what we're missing is the scene the next morning mm. when Picard and Dr. Crusher are having their tea, and Crusher is just like, yeah, she's the worst. <laughs> let, let me tell you about this woman. Yeah, maybe. She's, she's terrible, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel the same way that you did about that. But let's talk about something else that happened in this episode. Okay, um, very good. I think it's like one of the silliest things. But okay. it, it, every time it comes up, though, I, I imagine philosophers just going over and over and over and over it. Um, can God make a boulder so heavy that God can't lift it? And it, that's not a new mm-hmm. idea for me, but that is exactly what Q says has happened in this. He's like, So he's set up this entire thing. Either he's recreated Sherwood Forest in pretend 12th century England, or he's mm-hmm. taken them all back to real Sherwood Forest with real Robin Hood characters. Yeah. In I, real... By the way, I'm very concerned about these people who get killed. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. But yeah. then, but then what Q says is, Oh yeah. I, I, I set this thing on autopilot, by the way, I can't stop it. I got no idea what's going to happen here. I mean, it made mm-hmm. me wonder actually if Vosh had been able to trick Sir Guy of Gisborne into thinking that the Sheriff of Nottingham was actually working against him. Could they have killed Q at this point? Could Q have died? Or is Q just lying? Now, Q lies all the time. But when Q says, no, 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 this, this, this thing has a whole mind of its own now. There's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Uh, it made me wonder about the whole, okay, so is Q really omnipotent? And it just reminded me of the whole, you know, could God make a boulder? Because, you know, God can do anything, including lift a boulder, except could he then make a boulder that he couldn't lift? Right. And so, you know, here we are now where Q can't do anything, even though he does stuff. I mean, the whole thing is going to end with, with Marion marrying Guy of Gisborne, except that yeah, Q turns yeah. around for treachery. Oh, so Q actually can affect things simply by observing it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but he right. can't stop it. But he can change it, but he won't. Except for yeah, when he that, wants to. That, that seemed, I, I don't know, maybe... Well, again, do we know if Q is telling the truth about that? That he couldn't right. stop anything, he couldn't change anything? Because it seems like he could just snap his fingers, flash a light, and then right. everything changes. Right. They're not in Sherwood Forest anymore. But yeah, we, like, we have to take him at his word, I guess. Deus not ex machina. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, how should we feel about Jean-Luc 
at the end of this. Um, he, he spends the first part of the episode in denial about his feelings for Vash. And finally, he comes around, partly because he doesn't want to see her killed, partly because, okay, admittedly, he does have feelings for her. And then she goes away. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, do we feel sorry for him? Did he learn something? Did anyone learn anything? Because now Vasha gets to sort of go off and do whatever she wants to with Q, and Q can provide her anything without any sort of moral baggage <laughs> that uh, that Picard might have. Sure, you want to visit a place of soft limits? Absolutely, we'll go there, no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, it was just sort of playing the game. That, that that this was about. So um, I, I wondered, and I, I wondered about Jean-Luc. Clearly, we're painting a picture of a guy who is not so great at interpersonal relationships or really exploring his feelings. But we knew that. We knew that about Picard See, kind of from the beginning. I, I disagree with that assertion, though. He, yeah. he lives the way he lives. He does not talk about his personal life at work. I mean, I, I take him at his word when he says that. When he says to her at the end of the episode, just because I don't tell everybody how I'm feeling doesn't mean I don't have feelings. I don't think, mm-hmm. that, I don't think he's in denial about his feelings for Vosh at all. I think he's not wearing it on his sleeve, especially because mm-hmm. the way his life is right now and the way her life tends to be, they're not going to be together all the time. What, she's no, going to be the perfect not. captain's no. wife? He's going to run off. He is more likely to run off and go adventuring with her than she is to be, you know, first lady of a starship material. I don't know what you would even call that. But I never for once thought that he was in denial about his own feelings. He's just not talking to anybody about it because it's none of their business. Hmm. Not to rain on their parade, but how long do you think it will be before Q tires of the desire for profit expressed by Vosh? Hey, Ken, I've got a question that's an old standby question, one that we like to return to week after week. I would like to know from your perspective, does this episode hold up? And then then we'll talk about messages, morals, meanings. But but as an episode, as a piece of Star Trek and as a piece of entertainment, how do you feel about this episode? Does it hold up? I'm having a harder time with this question lately, and I'll tell you why. It's because I've started now watching it sort of like it's my second or third viewing on the first viewing. So what's weird is I'm actually enjoying it I'm enjoying episodes more on the second or third viewing because I've, I've, I've sort of like, I don't know why. I can't turn my head off at, at the first time I watch it, and I kind of feel like I should somehow. Mm. So, so when I first watched this show for this week, my answer to this question was going to be no. And then when I mm. watched it again, you know, more meticulously the second and third time to get, you know, the notes and to write the recap and all that stuff, I, mean, I think yes. I mean, are there, are there loose ends? Plenty. There's so many (laughs) loose ends here, it's crazy. Like, Q does not send them back to the Enterprise in the moment that they left. They come back to an empty 10 Ford where the symposium was being held, right? Which means, like, they disappeared and all the archaeologists got up and went, oh, um, (laughs) should we wait? (laughs) <laughs> and, and how long do you think they did? I mean, there are many, many, you know, like, like loose threads here, but not, like, satisfactorily... Like tied up loose threads, sort of like, oh, okay, so that just yeah. stopped. Why are we going around Tagus 3? 
it makes no sense to bring all of those people there. And why are we having this thing in a bar instead of having it on the holodeck? Like civilized people would, but I digress and right. I digress and I digress. Yeah, I think the episode holds up. Uh, John Delancey didn't seem quite as Q in this episode as he has in the past, but it's still always fun to see John Delancey be Q. Hmm. Once again, we get an acting lesson from Patrick Stewart. He is not beating his chest thus or, you know, thrashing his arms thus, but he obviously loves Vash. It's just on his face. When he sees her, mm-hmm. there is a warmth on, on, on Picard's face that you almost never see. Mm-hmm. Um, is the story stupid? Yeah. <laughs> Does it work anyway? Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost too fun to not. So, yes, I mean... It's weird to ask if it holds up because we're holding it to the same standard as we would hold the Corbomite maneuver, or we're holding it to the same standard as we would hold some of the best that Star Trek has ever had. And I wouldn't put this even in the top 10. I might not even put it in the top 100 by the time we're done. I don't know. But it's always fun to see Q, and it's, it, it is fun to, even though it, seem, it seems to me, it seemed to you that Picard is not really reflecting at all on his relationship or on his, on his feelings of, of love or relationship or what that means. I think the way he handles it gives us a chance to reflect on it, too. So, yeah, I got to say, I personally think this episode holds up. What about you? Yeah, I'm a little torn on it. I mean, I feel like it's a lot of fun Mm -hmm. and it's funny, Mm -hmm. but it's ultimately kind of inconsequential. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we got some great lines and we get to break the crew out of their usual environment, which is usually a lot of fun. And we get to do that without doing another holodeck episode. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Planet Mud <laughs> earlier. Yeah. But I think about Mud and I think about there's an episode that so many people wrote to us and said, well, but it's just fun. Yeah. And you and I had a really hard time just seeing it for fun because there were so many just horrible things that happened in that episode and horrible ideas that came from that episode. Um, This is not that. There's certainly not the the bad taste in my mouth uh, from this that I got from iMud or or things about Mm -hmm. iMud. And I I would definitely watch this again, and I think it would be a lot of fun to watch again. There are so many good character moments, but at the end of the day, I just go like, okay, well, that that was fun but not memorable. Hmm. Or, or if it was memorable, it was memorable just because, well, Patrick Stewart now has a goatee and a mustache and Data has the, the Friar Tuck haircut and you see the weird sort of lines that hold his skull together. <laughs> this is an interesting piece of makeup. Let me ask, um, let me ask you a question yeah. about that, though, because you said something interesting that I want to go back to. Mm-hmm. You said you feel like the episode is inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the original series, you could almost say that any episode was inconsequential because from one week to the next, Star Trek didn't remember that Star Trek had happened, right? I think it was like season three was the first time they referred to anything that had happened before, not counting, you know, the menagerie in the cage, because that doesn't count since they were just reusing the pilot. When you say inconsequential now, do you mean you don't feel like anything was addressed here? Or do you mean that this is a story that you can just take out and throw away? Because the further we get into Star Trek, the less likely we are to have those, right? We're, we're, we're moving now in a time where it's less anthology and more story arc. Maybe not completely right, story arc right. driven. We're not talking about something like, a, I don't know, The Sopranos, you know, or, or, or some show that um, um, you have to watch one episode to know what's going on in the next episode. 
it's not quite that, yeah. but we're getting to a place now where when you say inconsequential, I don't know if you mean we're not really addressing anything important, or do you mean this doesn't really fit the narrative? Because now it's it's becoming more of a narrative show, it seems. It is, yeah. And I honestly feel like this one is a little bit of both for me. Where mm. the Yeah, we do have a reference back to a character that we met before with Vash, and we have a character who reappears often, Q. Mm-hmm. Um, but was that, were those moments with Picard really important enough or impactful enough that it gave us any important or lasting insight into Picard. And I'm not saying that every episode has to be that. I'm not saying that every episode has to be a serious point of drama or a deep psychological analysis. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, like I said, at the end of this, it was just sort of about the game. Okay, well, the game was how do we defeat these maybe living sentient beings that are filling the roles of Robin Hood's enemies. Hmm. So in that case, it sort of is like another holodeck episode. Once you figure out the game, you're done. And then we get rid of Vash, so Picard doesn't have to deal with her anymore. And then it's business as usual from there on out. Um, See, this kind of goes into the message part of it, but I I think I would disagree with that. I think it is an examination of, of, of love and relationship and what those things mean to whom. Um, I mean, it's not the unbearable lightness of being, mm-hmm. which is an amazing examination of those things, I think. Uh, sure, yeah. If you get the right translation, which is, I hate because I don't know which translation you should read, but the one I read, <laughs> boom, kind of amazing. I mean, this is not an incredibly deep examination of those things, but I mean, the fact that you sort of walk away from it going, wow, Picard just isn't in touch with his feelings at all. And I'm saying, oh, I think Picard is completely in touch with his feelings and you don't have to be. And that's okay. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he mm-hmm. he has mm-hmm. my personal read of this is even though it doesn't look like what, you know, Vash thinks of as love. And even though Picard, I mean, not Picard, even though Q it just has no use for it at all. I think there's a very real emotional thing going on with Picard. And that looks like something different for Riker. And that looks like something different for Beverly. And that looks like something different for Q. And that looks like something different for Vash. But it it doesn't make it less so. I found myself thinking about the unbearable lightness of... Uh, not the unbearable, I already said that. Uh, Remains of the Day. Remains of hmm. the Day, uh, the butler, Stevens, is in love with, with uh, Miss Kenton. And he doesn't know it. And it takes him decades to realize how much he was in love with her. This is not that. Picard knows how he feels about Vash. And Riker doesn't have to. Nobody else has to. Uh, he thinks that Vosh sure, understands. Sure. And yeah. when he understands, when he realizes that Vosh doesn't understand, then he does make it clear to her. But he's not saying, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get your name tattooed across my forehead so everybody knows. He tells her, look, I know this doesn't look like what you think it does, but I swear to you, I love you. And yet I'm who I am. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to carry that the way I carry it. But I want you to know. And then, you know, if she were actually going to be around for another three episodes, they, they might have a bigger talk about that than Keiko and O'Brien seem to have had about their relationship. <laughs> uh, but uh, to me, it was actually it was an interesting examination of, of how one presents and carries and, and feels uh, love and relationship on their own. Hmm. So the, those are the messages that you got from it then? Well, I mean, I mean it's not a message per se, but I mean, yeah, we've talked before yeah. about how uh, they do present, uh, certain episodes present things to examine, and this mm-hmm. struck me as that. I mean, wrapped in a whole bunch of swashbuckling as well. What about you? Yeah. I mean, were there, yeah. were there other messages or ideas that you saw presented? 
A, a little bit. Okay. I mean, it, it, it's sort of always interesting to me that uh, when Q shows up, Picard will immediately start to rationalize with him. <laughs> and he should know that that doesn't work. You can't yeah. argue with crazy. But Q is completely unpredictable, and that's wonderful. Uh, it's great to see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Picard should know better at that point. Um, and, and there is something there for Picard to sort of at least grapple with and and admit to himself that sometimes he has to follow his heart um, and admit what it is that he wants. Um, I, I think there's something healthy about even though I acknowledge that he doesn't need to advertise or discuss his relationship with anyone, mm-hmm. um, there is something to be said for just some level of transparency and truthfulness and 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 who he is and what his life is like. Everybody gets to sort of create that limit or that boundary on their own. Mm-hmm. But it, it, we're painting this picture here of Picard as somebody who would really just as soon present himself to everyone around him as the job and that is all. And especially with Beverly, if they have these conversations at tea every morning before work, then what do they talk about? Yeah. Because, well that's a whole other know, that's a whole other layer of weirdness though. Their relationship. It is. It yeah. Is. yeah. I, I wonder if we'll ever examine that. Or if they oh. will Maybe maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll be able to get to that one day. But I guess we'll have to stay tuned to find out. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, The Drumhead. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. The Adventures of Vosh and Q should totally have been a Star Trek spin-off. I would absolutely do voice work for that show. After the Moonlighting Podcast, and the Kolchak Podcast, and Three is Company. And transmission. <laughs>